Hello, this is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. Today, uh, I'm going to be talking about the Womack family, the musical Womack family. I'm sure any soul fan, any fan of soul music would be uh, familiar with Bobby Womack and uh, probably to a lesser degree, his four brothers. Um, But... This is uh, not so much a regular biography of the Womacks. Um, It's really just talking about uh, some of the scandals that they found themselves in. Uh, They had some very interesting overlapping relationships. Um, And we're going to be talking about that today. Um, Today, it's a lot going on. It always is a lot going on, but right now... um, there's a lot going on, you know, cosmically, astrologically, uh, there's a lot of attention on this, uh, upcoming great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn going into Aquarius, and they're going to be really close to each other, um, forming what they call, uh, Christmas, a Christmas star, I guess it's supposed to be, uh, you know, what was referred to in the Bible when they talked about the wise men going to find the baby Jesus, uh, you know. Um, so, you know, like I said, there's always a lot going on, but there's not always so much going on at the same time. And, um, you know, of course, what goes on in the cosmos affects what goes on on the earth, you know, as above, so below, um, so, you know, we have all these things going on with, the the pandemic, which is, you know, supposedly, you know, in its second wave of, you know, really, I guess, being worse than it was, or, you know, getting, gaining more traction, um, we have these, um, these vaccines that they have come out with, uh, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine that were approved, but there's a lot of controversy with these vaccines because we don't really know what's in them, what, we don't know what the, what the deal is with these vaccines. So, you know, I'm not trying to get on a soapbox and tell people what to do, but, you know, I do think no matter what's going on, you need to do your research and know what's going on. Um, this is also the, um, the holiday season. You know, if you celebrate Christmas or Saturnalia, um, Kwanzaa, whatever you, uh, celebrate, or if you don't celebrate anything, um, this is considered the holiday season. And I know a lot of people are having trouble getting into the, what we call the holiday spirit, um, because of everything that's been happening. Um, it's just been really crazy, but, um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and get into the, the story, um, what I'm going to be talking about today. Like I said, I'm talking about the Walmax. Um, these are, <clears throat> pardon me, <laughs> uh, the Walmax brothers, musical family, um, these were the sons of Friendly and Naomi Womack. Friendly Womack lived from April 5th, 1919 to July 14th, 1981. So he lived for 62 years and uh, he was married to 
Naomi Rose Reed Womack, who was born September 17th. 1921 and uh, died on December 15th, 2011. So she lived for 90 years. She uh, outlived him by 30 years. Anyway, Friendly uh, and Naomi had five sons. They had Friendly Jr., who was born in 1941. Uh, Howard Curtis, no known as Curtis. He lived from 1942 to 2017. Uh, Robert Duane, the most famous, known as Bobby, he lived from 1944 to 2014. Um, we have Harris, who was known as Harry. He lived from 1945 to 1974. And Cecil Dale, who lived from 1947 to 2013. Okay. Um, <clears throat> they had, uh, you know, as I said, they had five sons, and they raised their boys in Cleveland, Ohio. Even though apparently they their roots were in West Virginia, but they raised the boys in Cleveland. Um, Friendly Senior was a steel worker and a guitar player, and I also read somewhere that he was a shepherd. I don't know if they're referring to him having this church or what that is, because I don't know what a shepherd is in the 20th and 21st century. But um, they say he was a shepherd. He uh, played the guitar. I couldn't find out the name of the church that they said he had, but it was on uh, the East 85th and Quincy area of Cleveland. And uh, Naomi, his wife, played the church organ. And it was here that the Womack brothers developed their musical talents. Um, Bobby actually took up the guitar behind his father's back because Friendly forbade the boys from touching his beloved guitar, just like Joe Jackson would do in later years with his children. Uh, but predictably, Bobby eventually broke a string, and when Friendly found out about the broken string, he told Bobby to play or pay, you know, in the form of a whipping. Um, on the verge of tears and with a nervous stomach, Bobby started to play. Um, he faltered at first, you know, he was fighting tears you know he was scared he knew he was in trouble but uh he quickly righted himself and that was the day that friendly Womack senior learned that bobby had real talent and he bought bobby and all of his brothers guitars of their own and you know they formed a gospel singing group um you know that was what people did back then you know they had the church and that was where they developed um their musical abilities and people sometimes you know nowadays will say you know maybe if people were more into the church the music would be better I don't think I don't even think that it was so much the church because I'm sure in the slave days uh, black people were they were singing together while they were picking cotton we're just musical people you know no matter what the circumstances, we could all get together and do our music, I think that probably would make the music better, you know. And I know a lot of people, you know, don't like to hear us compare today's music to the music of, you know, back in the day, but because there's really no comparison, you know, this had real soul, real heart, you know. But anyway, the uh, boys started to perfect their sound, you know, they really really got to be really good. And um, the Womack boys started doing gospel tours throughout the Midwest. And it was a family affair, obviously, with, obviously with not just the five brothers, but their parents, you know, with Friendly playing guitar and Naomi on the organ. 
and uh, they became known as Curtis Womack and the Womack Brothers, even though Bobby, who was 10 at the time, acted as a co-lead singer. Um, their first uh, national single, uh, as far as I know, was 1954's Buffalo Bill, and this got the attention of uh, Sam Cooke, and yeah, the Sam Cooke. Uh, Sam signed them to his label, this SAR or SAR Records, uh, a few years after he discovered them. And they recorded the gospel songs, Somebody's Wrong and Couldn't Hear Nobody Pray. Um, when these songs didn't do what they wanted them to do, uh, Sam urged them to go secular, to start, you know, put away the religious music and start singing, you know, the love songs and the soul songs. But, um, of course... Predictably, Friendly Senior was devastated that his sons wanted to sing the so-called devil's music. You know, it's really uh, a never-ending story. Anybody that was coming up in that era, you know, who started off singing in church, if they were looking like they wanted to sing love songs, soul songs, whatever, R&B songs, it was really strongly frowned upon by, you know, the church that they were associated and usually with their, you know, by their parents. And they were accused of abandoning God and trying to sing the devil's music. But anyway, uh, he didn't want the boys who were now teenagers doing that under his roof. So, you know, he wanted them to get out. But um, <clears throat> this inspired them to change their name. They were going by the Womack Brothers. And I'm sure um, Friendly didn't want his name, the Womack name, associated with this, this nasty music. So... They started calling themselves the Valentinos. And um, Bobby and Curtis, of course, alternated on lead vocals. But um, Sam preferred Bobby's voice. And um, I think most people at that time preferred, preferred Bobby's voice. You know, yeah, even at that young age, a, a really soulful voice. And um, the Walmax did continue recording gospel tunes, even though they were becoming well-known as a soul act. And uh, Sam Cooke relocated them to the West Coast. And um, they, you know, continued to perfect the sound. And they were fusing gospel and soul together. And they sprinkled a little pop on top. Couldn't Hear Nobody Pray was reworked into Looking for a Love, which was later covered by the Jay Giles Band. And uh, it was re-recorded by Bobby Womack himself with his brother singing background. Um, I think that was in the early 70s. And um, they also put out a song called It's All Over Now, which was later covered by the Rolling Stones, and it became their first, the Rolling Stones' first U.S. hit. Now, they say Bobby Womack was really upset about that at first, you know, that they had taken the song and made it so popular, you know, after they had recorded it, but... Bobby wrote the song, and this was a lesson to him in, you know, publishing and, you know, getting songwriters royalties, you know, because the song was so popular, Bobby started making big money off of the song, just off because of uh, the Rolling Stones version of it. So he calmed down once he started seeing those checks. He was happy that the song was doing so well. Anyway, the boys became an opening act for James Brown, and Bobby uh, was working as a guitarist for Sam Cooke. And during an engagement at Harlem's Apollo Theater, all the Womack brothers had sex with the same prostitute and ended up with the same sexually transmitted disease. So 
that wasn't fun. But anyway, they, they recovered from that and went on with their lives, which were very intriguing, you know, and were uh, inspiration for their, their songs and for Bobby's songwriting. Uh, obviously, Bobby Womack was the most well-known and, you know, some would say the most talented of the brothers. And he was um, the first to publicly enter into a very controversial relationship. And let me tell you, uh, in 1964, of course, Sam Cooke was murdered under very, very strange circumstances. Um, he was, I'm not going to get all into it, you know. I may do a story on Sam Cooke in the future, but he was killed under some strange circumstances. And to this day, you know, there are questions about what happened and why it happened and all of that. But Sam, obviously, you know, he had been the Valentino's mentor and he was particularly close to Bobby. So uh, Bobby did the unthinkable. When Sam died, he quickly got romantically involved with Sam's widow, Barbara. You know, this was not a popular thing to do, but he claimed that he had gotten close to Barbara in order to protect her from those wanting to cash in on any money to do her from Sam's music. Um, interestingly, he couldn't protect Barbara from Alan Klein, which was the music industry shark who convinced her or coerced her to sell Sam's music catalog to him. Barbara was about nine years older than Bobby, who was only 20 at this time. 77 days, just 77 days after Sam's murder, Barbara and Bobby tried to get married. Bobby, as a minor in the state of California, needed permission from his parents to marry, and Friendly and Naomi refused to give it. They waited until the 5th of March, which was one day after Bobby became 21, to marry. And it was still less than three months after Sam's death. Bobby's family was outraged, as was Sam's family. Sam's brothers beat Bobby to within an inch of his life and continued pummeling the poor boy until Barbara threatened him with a gun. Uh, follow this. Barbara attempted to shoot Sam's brother, Charles, but she was stunned when she attempted to fire the gun only to learn that it had no bullets. Bobby, always a visionary like his mentor Sam Cook, had the foresight to remove the bullets before the beatdown. He reasoned in his mind that it would have looked like Charles Cook and his brother, L.C. Cook, had been lured to the hotel room to be killed by Bobby and Barbara. And this is something that I heard Bobby say out of his own mouth in an interview. Charles and his brother backed off, but only after Bobby's jaw was broken. Now, the public backlash against Bobby Womack had just begun. Sam Cooke was the most worshipped and revered singer in the Soul Pantheon. For this pipsqueak to marry his widow at all, and certainly so soon after his brutal murder, rubbed most people raw. Did this mean that Bobby and Barbara played a role in Sam's strange death? Were they romantically involved before his death? It sure appeared that way. You know, it was believable to a lot of people. Bobby couldn't get arrested in the music industry. He was blackballed and shunned. DJs wouldn't play any songs associated with him, and he received death threats from appalled and livid Sam Cooke fans. 
Nobody wanted to tour with him. Depressed and demoralized, Bobby started taking drugs. He tried to settle into family life with Barbara, becoming stepfather to Barbara and Sam's two daughters, Linda and Tracy. Barbara and Bobby went on to have one son together named Vincent. Interestingly enough, Barbara and Sam had also had a son named Vincent. Vincent Cook died as a toddler when he accidentally drowned in the family swimming pool. Allegedly, Barbara was too busy participating in a wild sex orgy to keep a proper eye on little Vincent. It has been said, it's been said all over the place. I'm not the first person to say this, so don't be trying to come for me. Whatever the true circumstances surrounding the tragedy, Sam never forgave Barbara. Still more interestingly, Bobby later had another son, Bobby Truth, named by Bobby's friend, musician Sly Stone, who you know, from Sly and the Family Stone, with a later wife named Regina. Bobby Truth died in a complicated accident which involved his head getting stuck between the headboard and mattress of the bed that he was resting on. Bobby was high on cocaine at the time. Bobby Truth was only three months old when he died and would eventually be followed by Bobby and Regina's son, Truth Bobby. But I don't want to get ahead of myself here. That's, you know, for later on. Bobby and Barbara's marriage limped along for a while. Bobby's professional saving grace was his talent as a guitarist and songwriter. He wrote songs for the Rolling Stones and Wilson Pickett, like the aforementioned It's All Over Now and I'm In Love, which Wilson Pickett recorded. He produced sessions for Aretha Franklin. He signed to Minit Records in 1968, and they released his Fly Me to the Moon solo album, featuring his version of the Mamas and the Papas California Dreaming. He worked with Janis Joplin and Sly and the Family Stone. He penned across the 110th Street for the movie of the same name. Bobby eventually built himself back up, regaining the respect of his peers and the public. Linda Cook, Sam and Barbara's daughter, had developed into a talented singer-songwriter in her own right, and a pretty one too, and unfortunately Bobby noticed. The two started an affair. In this day and age, people would say that he started molesting her. Linda was a teenager and Bobby was in his 20s, and I think that Bobby and Linda have the same age difference as Bobby and Barbara, only in reverse. You know, with Bobby being older than Linda, and of course, Barbara was older than Bobby. But anyway, Barbara caught Bobby and Linda together, and she fired a shot at Bobby. The bullet grazed his head. And that marked the end of the marriage. And according to Bobby, this is according to Bobby, mother and daughter, that's Barbara and Linda, never spoke to each other again. Uh, Linda co-wrote A Woman's Gotta Have It with Bobby in 1972. And Linda went on to marry Bobby's brother, Cecil, after Cecil was divorced from Motown legend Mary Wells, well known for the hit songs My Guy and Two Lovers. Cecil was married to Mary for about a decade, and they had three kids together. But Mary was in love with another Womack brother, Curtis, 
who would eventually father a daughter with Mary. Initially, Mary's guilt over her love for Curtis drove her to a suicide attempt. It's also been said that Curtis's abusive behavior caused Mary to deepen her addiction to drugs, namely heroin and later morphine. Linda and Cecil became partners in songwriting and performing. They scored a hit song of their own in the 1980s called Baby I'm Scared of You, and Linda co-wrote Love TKO, which was popularized by Teddy Pendergrass. Their life together was eccentric as they raised seven children together and lived in Thailand and South Africa and changed their name to the Zacharias. I think that's how that's pronounced, which honored their African roots. And they remained married until Cecil's 2013 death. Bobby enjoyed many years as a revered soul music legend, answering to such nicknames as The Poet, which is also the name of one of his albums, and Soul's Last Prophet. He's also called The Preacher. He was known for such songs as That's the Way I Feel About You, If You Think You're Lonely Now, and I Wish He Didn't Trust Me So Much, among many others. After his 1971 divorce from Barbara Cook, he had a brief marriage to Evelyn Evans, and then he remarried his third wife, Regina, or he married his third wife. He fathered the aforementioned Bobby Truth, Truth Bobby, and Gina Ray with Regina. Bobby and Regina split up. Bobby fathered two more sons, Corey and Jordan, from another relationship. The son he shared with Barbara, Vincent, shot and killed himself when he was 21 years old. Now, the Womack brothers, uh, after Bobby left the group and after Sam Cooke died, they signed with Chess Records. And they had a few more noteworthy singles, Do It Right and I Can Understand It, before they broke up completely. Now, in 1974, one of the Womack brothers, Harry, was stabbed to death by a jealous girlfriend while he was house-sitting for Bobby, who was on the road. Bobby later dedicated the Jim Ford Penn song, Harry Hippie, to his slain brother. When it was released in 1973, it reached number eight on the R&B chart. In Bobby's seven decades in the music industry, he created 23 studio albums and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2009. Over the years, Bobby was diagnosed variously with cancer, diabetes, and even Alzheimer's disease. His third wife, Regina, reconciled with him in 2013. Bobby died in June of 2014 when he was 70 years old. Friendly Womack Jr. is the only surviving Womack brother. Harry was murdered, obviously, in 1974. Cecil died in 2013, and Curtis passed in 2017. One fun fact that I want to leave you with is... Uh, Friendly Womack Jr., the oldest Womack brother, was uh, working in a prison when he met an enterprising young inmate named Jeff Henderson. It was through Friendly that Jeff met his niece, Noelle, who, was, uh, who is the daughter of Cecil Womack and Mary Wells. Jeff and Noelle married and started a family. Jeff became well known as Chef Jeff, a famous chef and motivational speaker. 
At one point, Will Smith was being talked about as possibly playing Jeff in a biopic. And I don't know if that's still on the table or not. But um, if you're interested in reading about this very interesting family, I strongly recommend Bobby Womack's book, Bobby Womack, My Story. And you may also want to check out Mary Wells, The Tumultuous Life of Motown's First Superstar by Peter Benjaminson. And I also found both the Bobby Womack and Mary Wells unsung episodes to be very informative. Anyway, that is the end of this episode of Remembering the Misremembered with Monica. Uh, The next episode that I'm working on is having to do with uh, a singer who was one of the lead singers of the Drifters and his life and tragic, mysterious death. And I will be talking about that on the next episode. Thank you, and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembers. And um, today I am continuing with my Musical Feud series, which is uh, talking about some classic feuds that uh, took place basically, you know, back in the day, because, you know, I talk about stuff from back in the day. Uh, but the part, the person that I'm going to be speaking about today is someone that's really known by everybody. This is a, a, a big, 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 big star. One of the biggest stars ever. Um, she was a queen. Let me give you a hint. She was a queen of soul. Okay, Aretha Franklin. Now, Aretha Franklin spent many decades from the late 1960s until her death in the late 2010s protecting her title of Queen of Soul. Aretha established one of the most successful music careers in history, so not surprisingly, her ego became as inflated as her fluctuating physical weight. Not only was Aretha Franklin known as the Queen of Soul, a nickname bestowed upon her by radio personality Purvis Spann, but many people see her as the Queen of Shade as she frequently tossed shade on other singers with sarcastic, snide remarks and venomous eye rolls. Aretha was the queen of feuds. Versus, that's V-E-R-Z-U-Z, is a word now associated with friendly and respectful back and forth among music makers. But in Aretha's case, it likely would have been a sing-off until the death and a true test of who was the best. And this is my 11th episode of Remembering the Misremembered and second in the Musical Feud series. I'm going to look back at the Queen of Soul and Queen of Feuds, the one and only Aretha Franklin. Now, on August 16, 2018, Queen of Soul Aretha Franklin passed away at the age of 76 following years of ill health. It brought an end to a long, varied, and storied career as well as a life filled with heartache, trauma and almost constant conflict. Aretha's life was very, very big, full and action-packed, and there's just too much that we could talk about 
but I want to concentrate on the feud that she indulged in and why she needed to engage in feuds in order to maintain supremacy. We need to examine Aretha's background to get at least a little understanding about what shaped Aretha's psychology. Why was she so shady, insecure, and petty? Why did she guard her title of Queen of Soul so jealously? What forces contributed to Aretha becoming Queen of Shade, Queen of Verses, and Queen of Feuds? I'm not here to hate on Aretha. We all love Aretha, but Aretha was difficult. And we need to look into her life to try to maybe figure out why. So, a little about the background of the super diva for those who don't know and for those who do. Aretha Louise Franklin was born in Memphis, Tennessee on March 25, 1942 under the sun sign of Aries. The name Aretha is a Greek name meaning excellent, righteous, virtuous, and even beauty. She's the only child in her family whose name carries this kind of uniqueness, so I'm guessing that her parents had greatness in mind for their baby girl. Now, her parents were a gospel singer and pianist named Barbara Vernice Sigurds Franklin and a minister civil rights activist who was born by the name of Clarence LaVon Walker. Now, his surname was changed to Franklin after his mother, Rachel, married Henry Franklin, and he was adopted by him. He became well known as Reverend C.L. Franklin, having started his ministry when he was 16 years old. Now, Barbara and C.L. were Mississippi natives, and they married in Mississippi. C.L. had a brief marriage previously to a woman named Aileen Gaines. Now, they married in 1934, and they split up by 1936. Now, there's some question as to how the marriage was dissolved. Did they divorce, or did she die or disappear? Not sure. But 1936 is the year that C.L. split with Aileen and married Barbara in June of that year. Barbara was already the mother of a toddler named Vaughn from another relationship who C.L. adopted. Now, Vaughn didn't know that he was adopted until he was 17 years old, and I don't know if he ever met his biological father or if he even knew who he was. C.L. and Barbara had their first biological child together in 1938, a girl named Irma Vernice. In 1940, Barbara and C.L. had a son together named Cecil. Now, 1940 is the same year that C.L. also had a daughter named Carl Ellen with a 12-year-old member of his church congregation named Mildred. So when Aretha came along in 1942, she was born into a troubled marital situation and a certain familial chaos. On May 13, 1944, the Franklins had their last child, a little girl named Carolyn Ann. It's worth mentioning that Mahalia Jackson called Barbara Franklin one of the finest gospel singers and pianists in the country. Likewise, C.L. Franklin was known as the man with the million-dollar voice, for his talents as both a singer and a preacher. So Aretha's talents as singer, songwriter, and pianist were surely genetic. In fact, all of the daughters that Barbara and C.L. produced together were blessed with considerable musical ability. But the fact that C.L. Franklin couldn't keep it in his pants and was, in, was sleeping with anything breathing, I mean, come on, he impregnated a 12-year-old, people and may have been physically abusive, as he would be in 
a future relationship were sources of great pain for Barbara Franklin. C.L. moved the family to Buffalo, New York, where he pastored Friendship Baptist Church from May of 1944 until June of 1946. He then began pastoring New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan, a position he would hold for 33 years. Barbara and C.L. separated in 1948, with Barbara moving back to Buffalo, New York with Vaughn. Now, I don't believe the rumor that Barbara abandoned her other kids. I really think that C.L. didn't let her take the others. I know I'm speculating, but she probably was planning to reclaim her little ones at some point because she was building a life for herself. Aretha became quite defensive when people claimed that her mommy abandoned her and let people know that Barbara was a good and responsible mother who they visited and spent summer vacations with. Now keep in mind, Aretha was six when her mother split from her father. Then on March 7, 1952, Barbara Sigurds Franklin died at the young age of 34 and just weeks before Aretha's 10th birthday. The cause of Barbara Franklin's death is open for debate. It's been said that Barbara suffered a heart attack, but theories of foul play abound as well. She may have been hit by a car. The most outrageous theory is suicide by self-stabbing. It might not have been wise to get on the bad side of the powerful preacher who didn't attend her funeral even though he was still legally her husband. Aretha and her siblings did attend their mother's funeral, however. This tragedy marked the end of Aretha's so-called childhood. She was already damaged by life. All of this began the major trauma of Aretha's early years, a life of instability and loss. Aretha had mother figures in her life after the death of her mother, women like gospel greats Mahalia Jackson and Clara Ward. Around 1949, C.L. started a tumultuous relationship with Ward, and they would be off and on until her 1973 death. Now, Aretha always looked at Clara Ward and her father as close friends, but you know they were more than friends. And sometimes Aretha liked to turn a blind eye to the truth, which is understandable considering these painful beginnings that she had. I really find it hard to believe that Aretha didn't see her father's behavior in his relationships with multiple women, the sex, the violence, and whatever else went on. Aretha's grandmother, Rachel, was also an important woman in her life. Aretha started singing and playing piano by ear, and celebrities were a regular fixture at the Franklin home, and C.L. liked to show off Aretha's abilities to his famous friends. Now, these friends were not just Mahalia and Clara, but people like James Cleveland, who went on to help mentor Aretha, Albertina Walker, Inez Andrews, MLK, um, and secular singers like Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, Nat King Cole. A lot of these people would just drop by the house. So Aretha grew up with this strange combination of untreated emotional trauma, neglect, and pampered privilege. She came of age in Detroit during that city's golden age. She grew up with Smokey Robinson, a lifelong friend to her and her brother Cecil. Aretha learned to compete with her siblings for her father's attention. She had his ear as the most talented of his talented kids. And I'm sure much of her feuding instinct was sharpened right inside the Franklin home. Aretha started singing solos at her father's church. The first song she sang publicly, as far as anyone can remember, is 
Jesus be a fence around me. She traveled with her father for gospel caravan tours where she sang and sometimes played piano and he preached and sometimes sang. In her travels, Mavis met other young up-and-coming singers like Mavis Staples and Dionne Warwick who you know, were both a little older than Aretha, but she befriended them and would compete with them over the years. More proof that there would be no childhood for Aretha Franklin if there was a question came when she was 12. CL started managing her and helped her to get her very first record deal. But on January 28, 1955, two months shy of her 13th birthday, Aretha Franklin gave birth to a baby. Yes, 12-year-old Aretha gave birth to her very first child. Now, this is the second time in the course of this story that we're talking about a 12-year-old girl becoming a mother. Aretha gave birth at 12, the same age that the young girl Mildred was when she gave birth to C.L. Franklin's daughter, Carl Ellen. Aretha was mom on the child's paternity throughout her life. She was equally tight-lipped about the paternity of her second son, who she gave birth to at 14. There was widespread talk that the very grown Sam Cooke might have fathered him. The father of both boys is believed to be the same person, Edward Jordan, but this information was closely guarded during Aretha's life. Was there anyone for young Aretha to talk about her body and what it was capable of with, or the confusing adult feelings that she might have been experiencing? I don't know if there were any conversations being had or if she just wasn't listening. Her grandmother had to step up and raise these babies because Aretha wanted stardom and had to put in a lot of time working for it. As an adult, she would have two more sons and two marriages, including a physically abusive one. Now, I thought it was important to understand some of these things that shaped Aretha and what contributed to her feuding with almost every other singer she's ever met. So let's get into some of Aretha Franklin's most interesting feuds. Now we can start off with Aretha versus Natalie Cole. In 1977, the New York Times did an article in which Natalie Cole was called the new queen of soul. <clears throat> this wasn't Natalie's fault, but Aretha seemed to blame her. Aretha became angry too when Natalie broke Aretha's eight-year winning streak at the Grammys. She stopped speaking to Natalie and made nasty comments about Natalie singing to the press. Natalie idolized and revered Aretha, so she was really hurt and said it took her some time to get over Aretha's attitude towards her. Aretha dismissed Natalie as a beginner who can only pick up on another singer's sound and also said that she would say it to Natalie's face, allegedly. This was a sign that Natalie Cole had arrived, like it or not. Aretha versus Luther. Aretha wasn't impressed with Luther Vandross, even though he had been hired to produce her album. Aretha didn't think that Luther qualified to boss her around in the studio. Hadn't he learned much of what he knew from listening to her? During a telephone conversation where they discussed the upcoming album, Luther was put off by Aretha's cold, formal demeanor and her insistence on being addressed as Miss Franklin, while she called him Mr. Vandross or simply Vandross. In the studio, they disagreed. Finally, Aretha asked Luther, which one of us has more hits? Clearly, there was no contest. 
It was early in Luther's career, so he only had one hit while she had many. He granted her that. But then he flipped the question on her. But who has the most recent hit? He had her there, so she stormed out of the room. They got it together, though. Luther produced Aretha's Jump To It and Get It Right albums, which were pretty successful comebacks for her. And apparently they bonded over their mutual love of fried chicken. Someone claimed that Aretha and Luther left a studio reeking of fried chicken, allegedly. Aretha versus Roberta Flack. Aretha felt threatened by Roberta Flack and got up and walked out when a producer named Joel Dorn tried to play Roberta's first album for her. They were on the same record label and Aretha thought it highly inappropriate that another soul singer, songwriter, and pianist was on the label. Aretha allegedly tried to block Roberta's progress at the label. Aretha versus Whitney Houston. These two singers recorded together only once. Aretha had known Whitney since she was a child, back when Whitney's mother, Sissy, used to be Aretha's backup singer. But if Whitney thought that Aretha's association with Sissy would make things easy, she was mistaken. Aretha went out of her way to show Whitney who the boss was up in here. And she later said that Whitney needed to show humility. Aretha versus Dionne Warwick. Being friends with the Queen of Soul didn't mean she wouldn't feud with you. Aretha and Dion were friends for decades, but they had a little spat when word got back to the Queen that Dion had referred to Aretha as Whitney Houston's godmother at Whitney's funeral. Now, at the beginning of Whitney Houston's career, her mentor, Clive Davis, pulled out all the stops to take her directly to the top, and he exploited her connections, billing her as Sissy Houston's daughter, which was true, and Dion Warwick's cousin, also true. He also claimed that Whitney was Aretha's goddaughter, which wasn't true, but apparently it was okay with Aretha at the beginning because she never complained about it until Dion rehashed it at the funeral. But did Aretha have to call it libelous? And did she have to say that she didn't have time to be Whitney's godmother? But I guess if she didn't have time to be a mother to her own children, she shouldn't have been expected to godparent little Whitney Houston, should she? And for those who don't know, singer Darlene Love had the honor of being Whitney's real godmother. Also, too, I want to add about this uh, feud with Dionne Warwick. It actually goes back much. Now, back in the 1960s, Dionne Warwick was one of the biggest pop stars of that decade. She spent the 60s opening a a lot of doors for women on the pop charts. And, of course, she had that hit, uh, I Say a Little Prayer for You. Well, you know, when Aretha heard that, her feelings of jealousy really were fueled. You know, she wanted to be a bigger pop sensation than she was at the time. So what did Aretha do? She went and recorded her version of I Say a Little Prayer for You. And her version, in many people's opinions, including the opinions of Burt Bacharach and Hal David, who wrote the song, Aretha's version was superior They said it was the definitive version of that song. So I guess score one for Aretha on that. Now this is a little more alleged, a little more uh, murky. There were rumors of an Aretha versus Mahalia Jackson feud, allegedly because Mahalia refused to perjure herself in court to help C.L. Franklin. But there's not much said about it. I couldn't find much on it. So this will have to go in the rumor pile and the allegedly pile. Aretha versus Gladys Knight. 
These divas apparently had a stormy relationship that got stormier when Gladys wrote personal information about Aretha in her autobiography. I think Aretha thought Gladys reignited talk that Aretha's mother abandoned her, which was a very touchy subject for Miss Franklin. Aretha versus Patti LaBelle. This might not have been just about singing, but about cooking, and the fact that Patty beat Aretha to the punch when she put out her successful line of sweet potato pies. Aretha had always wanted to start a food line, so it must have been hard to watch Patty succeed so wildly in this endeavor. Uh, Patty and Aretha were seen in public somewhere, where I think Aretha was the focus of the action, and uh, Patty was an audience member. And Patty looked like she was trying to speak to Aretha, and Aretha just walked right past her and didn't even look at her. This footage can be viewed on YouTube. Um, you know, just look up, I guess, Aretha walking past Patty LaBelle or something like that. And uh, it's pretty easy to find. Aretha versus Mavis Staples. Aretha recorded a gospel duet with Mavis, one of the few singers who could keep up with her. In fact, after hearing the recording, she felt that Mavis's vocals surpassed her own. So, according to Aretha's sister Irma, Aretha had Mavis's vocal turned down low in the final mix, which caused there to be bad blood between the two longtime friends. Aretha versus her sisters Irma and Carolyn. Speaking of Aretha's sisters, Aretha supposedly did all she could to hold Irma and Carolyn back. Now remember, these are the first people that Aretha ever feuded with, these are her sisters who she grew up in the same house with. It was fine for them to work with her, arranging vocals and singing backup, even writing songs. But Aretha had a real problem with either of them having careers of their own. She blocked Irma from signing with Epic Records. And when Carolyn was offered the chance to sing on the Sparkle soundtrack, Aretha muscled her way in so that she ended up singing it. Aretha versus Tina Turner. Aretha allegedly became upset when people started calling the queen of rock and roll, calling Tina Turner the queen of rock and roll. I guess she thought it would cause confusion or something. I don't know. But Tina said it was crazy for Aretha to think that she was the only queen that there is. Aretha versus Beyonce. Now this is attached to Aretha's Tina Turner feud. Beyonce was somewhere on stage and she introduced Tina as the queen. And she is the queen of rock and roll, as we just stated. And Aretha had the typical Aretha conniption. But anyway, those are some of Aretha's feuds. I could have probably gone into more feuds, but hey, I had no idea how long this was going to take. But that's the story of Aretha Franklin's feuds, basically. You know, she basically feuded with whoever came up, you know, because... If it was a talented person, all of these people that she has had these feuds with have been very talented. And I think uh, Aretha admires the talent, but it also, you know, gave her feelings of insecurity about her own talent. And, you know, not just her talent, but her position and her supremacy. She needed to be the very best. And I think some of these people just, in her mind, you know, they were a threat. But uh, to be fair, they're were some singers that she liked as you know not just as singers but I guess as people you know she liked Jennifer Hudson enough to cast her as her in her biopic she liked Diana Ross and she liked Mariah Carey and sang some of Mariah's songs in her concerts like Hero um, Dream Lover and I thought it was hilarious when she did Touch My Body 
And according to Mariah, Aretha insisted that Mariah sing at the very first Divas Live, showing that she could be generous when she wanted to be. But the way that Aretha carried on, you might not guess that she was one of the most successful singers in the history of recording recorded sound. I mean, she had like maybe 112 different chartings uh, on the charts over the course of her career. She was a pioneer with more than her share of firsts. She was the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She was the youngest person up until Stevie Wonder came along to be uh, picked for the Kennedy Center Honors. She had a lot of honors. I can't even, I can't even get into that. That's probably a, an episode uh, unto itself, and it may be an episode that I, you know, try to do in the future. Um, she opened a lot of doors for black people and for women. She was difficult and haughty, but don't we expect that from our divas? I mean, we would be really bored if she was just sitting around being nice to everybody and all that type of thing. You know, No, this was a real battle for supremacy for her. And, you know, she did what she had to do, I suppose, at least, you know, in her mind. She was a difficult lady, but she never gave us less than too much. I'm Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered Musical Feuds. I don't know what I'm going to call it. I guess I'm going to just call it Aretha Queen of Feuds and not Aretha Queen of Verses. I think that probably uh, would be appropriate because Aretha was something else. And that is really missed. But anyway, Monica here, remembering the misremembered, remembering the, remembering the super diva herself, Miss Aretha Franklin. I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is remembering the misremembers and um, today I am continuing with my musical feud series which is uh, you know talking about some classic feuds that uh, took place basically you know back in the day because you know I talk about stuff from back in the day uh, but the part the person that I'm going to be speaking about today is someone that's really known by everybody. This is a, a, a big, 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 big star. One of the biggest stars ever. Um, she was a queen. Let me give you a hint. She was a queen of soul. Okay, Aretha Franklin. Now, Aretha Franklin spent many decades from the late 1960s until her death in the late 2010s protecting her title of Queen of Soul. Aretha established one of the most successful music careers in history. So not surprisingly, her ego became as inflated as her fluctuating physical weight. Not only was Aretha Franklin known as the Queen of Soul, a nickname bestowed upon her by radio personality Purvis Spann, but many people see her as the Queen of Shade as she frequently tossed shade on other singers with sarcastic, snide remarks and venomous eye rolls. Aretha was the queen of feuds. Verses, that's V-E-R-Z-U-Z, 
is a word now associated with friendly and respectful back and forth among music makers. But in Aretha's case, it likely would have been a sing-off until the death and a true test of who was the best. And this is my 11th episode of Remembering the Misremembered and second in the Musical Feud series. I'm going to look back at the Queen of Soul and Queen of Feuds, the one and only Aretha Franklin. Now, on August 16, 2018, Queen of Soul Aretha Franklin passed away at the age of 76, following years of ill health. It brought an end to a long, varied, and storied career, as well as a life filled with heartache, trauma, and almost constant conflict. Aretha's life was very, very big, full, and action-packed, and there's just too much that we could talk about. But I want to concentrate on the feuds that she indulged in, and why she needed to engage in feuds in order to maintain supremacy. We need to examine Aretha's background to get at least a little understanding about what shaped Aretha's psychology. Why was she so shady, insecure, and petty? Why did she guard her title of Queen of Soul so jealously? What forces contributed to Aretha becoming Queen of Shade, Queen of Verses, and Queen of Feuds? I'm not here to hate on Aretha. We all love Aretha, but Aretha was difficult. And we need to look into her life to try to maybe figure out why. So, a little about the background of the super diva for those who don't know and for those who do. Aretha Louise Franklin was born in Memphis, Tennessee on March 25, 1942 under the sun sign of Aries. The name Aretha is a Greek name, meaning excellent, righteous, virtuous, and even beauty. She's the only child in her family whose name carries this kind of uniqueness, so I'm guessing that her parents had greatness in mind for their baby girl. Now, her parents were a gospel singer and pianist named Barbara Vernice Sigurds Franklin and a minister, civil rights activist who was born by the name of Clarence LaVon Walker. Now, his surname was changed to Franklin after his mother, Rachel, married Henry Franklin, and he was adopted by him. He became well-known as Reverend C.L. Franklin, having started his ministry when he was 16 years old. Now, Barbara and C.L. were Mississippi natives, and they married in Mississippi. C.L. had a brief marriage previously to a woman named Aileen Gaines. Now, they married in 1934, and they split up by 1936. Now, there's some question as to how the marriage was dissolved. Did they divorce, or did she die or disappear? Not sure. But 1936 is the year that C.L. split with Aileen and married Barbara in June of that year. Barbara was already the mother of a toddler named Vine from another relationship who C.L. adopted. Now, Vaughn didn't know that he was adopted until he was 17 years old, and I don't know if he ever met his biological father or if he even knew who he was. C.L. and Barbara had their first biological child together in 1938, a girl named Irma Vernice. In 1940, Barbara and C.L. had a son together named Cecil. Now, 1940 is the same year that C.L. also had a daughter named Carl Ellen with a 12-year-old member of his church congregation named Mildred. So when Aretha came along in 1942, she was born into a troubled marital situation and a certain familial chaos 
On May 13, 1944, the Franklins had their last child, a little girl named Carolyn Ann. It's worth mentioning that Mahalia Jackson called Barbara Franklin one of the finest gospel singers and pianists in the country. Likewise, C.L. Franklin was known as the man with the million dollar voice for his talents as both a singer and a preacher. So Aretha's talents as singer, songwriter, and pianist were surely genetic. In fact, all of the daughters that Barbara and C.L. produced together were blessed with considerable musical ability. But the fact that C.L. Franklin couldn't keep it in his pants and was in, was sleeping with anything breathing, I mean, come on, he impregnated a 12-year-old, people, and may have been physically abusive as he would be in a future relationship, were sources of great pain for Barbara Franklin. C.L. moved the family to Buffalo, New York, where he pastored Friendship Baptist Church from May of 1944 until June of 1946. He then began pastoring New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan, a position he would hold for 33 years. Barbara and C.L. separated in 1948, with Barbara moving back to Buffalo, New York with Vaughn. Now, I don't believe the rumor that Barbara abandoned her other kids. I really think that C.L. didn't let her take the others. I know I'm speculating, but she probably was planning to reclaim her little ones at some point because she was building a life for herself. Aretha became quite defensive when people claimed that her mommy abandoned her and let people know that Barbara was a good and responsible mother who they visited and spent summer vacations with. Now keep in mind, Aretha was six when her mother split from her father. Then on March 7, 1952, Barbara Sigurds Franklin died at the young age of 34 and just weeks before Aretha's 10th birthday. The cause of Barbara Franklin's death is open for debate. It's been said that Barbara suffered a heart attack, but theories of foul play abound as well. She may have been hit by a car. The most outrageous theory is suicide by self-stabbing. It might not have been wise to get on the bad side of the powerful preacher who didn't attend her funeral even though he was still legally her husband. Aretha and her siblings did attend their mother's funeral, however. This tragedy marked the end of Aretha's so-called childhood. She was already damaged by life. All of this began the major trauma of Aretha's early years, a life of instability and loss. Aretha had mother figures in her life after the death of her mother, women like gospel greats Mahalia Jackson and Clara Ward. Around 1949, C.L. started a tumultuous relationship with Ward, and they would be off and on until her 1973 death. Now, Aretha always looked at Clara Ward and her father as close friends, but you know they were more than friends. And sometimes Aretha liked to turn a blind eye to the truth, which is understandable considering these painful beginnings that she had. I really find it hard to believe that Aretha didn't see her father's behavior in his relationships with multiple women, the sex, the violence, and whatever else went on. Aretha's grandmother, Rachel, was also an important woman in her life. Aretha started singing and playing piano by ear, and celebrities were a regular fixture at the Franklin home, and C.L. liked to show off Aretha's abilities to his famous friends. Now, these friends were not just Mahalia and Clara, but people like James Cleveland, who went on to help mentor Aretha, Albertina Walker, 
Inez Andrews, MLK, um, and secular singers like Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, Nat King Cole. A lot of these people would just drop by the house. So Aretha grew up with this strange combination of untreated emotional trauma, neglect, and pampered privilege. She came of age in Detroit during that city's golden age. She grew up with Smokey Robinson, a lifelong friend to her and her brother Cecil. Aretha learned to compete with her siblings for her father's attention. She had his ear as the most talented of his talented kids. And I'm sure much of her feuding instinct was sharpened right inside the Franklin home. Aretha started singing solos at her father's church. The first song she sang publicly, as far as any, anyone can remember, is Jesus Be a Fence Around Me. She traveled with her father for gospel caravan tours, where she sang and sometimes played piano, and he preached and sometimes sang. In her travels, Mavis met other young up-and-coming singers like Mavis Staples and Dionne Warwick, who you know were both a little older than Aretha, but she befriended them and would compete with them over the years. More proof that there would be no childhood for Aretha Franklin if there was a question came when she was 12. CL started managing her and helped her to get her very first record deal. But on January 28, 1955, two months shy of her 13th birthday, Aretha Franklin gave birth to a baby. Yes, 12-year-old Aretha gave birth to her very first child. Now, this is the second time in the course of this story that we're talking about a 12-year-old girl becoming a mother. Aretha gave birth at 12, the same age that the young girl Mildred was when she gave birth to C.L. Franklin's daughter, Carl Ellen. Aretha was mom on the child's paternity throughout her life. She was equally tight-lipped about the paternity of her second son, who she gave birth to at 14. There was widespread talk that the very grown Sam Cooke might have fathered him. The father of both boys is believed to be the same person, Edward Jordan, but this information was closely guarded during Aretha's life. Was there anyone for young Aretha to talk about her body and what it was capable of with, or the confusing adult feelings that she might have been experiencing? I don't know if there were any conversations being had or if she just wasn't listening. Her grandmother had to step up and raise these babies because Aretha wanted stardom and had to put in a lot of time working for it. As an adult, she would have two more sons and two marriages, including a physically abusive one. Now, I thought it was important to understand some of these things that shaped Aretha and what contributed to her feuding with almost every other singer she's ever met. So let's get into some of Aretha Franklin's most interesting feuds. Now, we can start off with Aretha versus Natalie Cole. In 1977, the New York Times did an article in which Natalie Cole was called the new queen of soul. <clears throat> this wasn't Natalie's fault, but Aretha seemed to blame her. Aretha became angry, too, when Natalie broke Aretha's eight-year winning streak at the Grammys. She stopped speaking to Natalie and made nasty comments about Natalie singing to the press. Natalie idolized and revered Aretha, so she was really hurt and said it took her some time to get over Aretha's attitude towards her. Aretha dismissed Natalie as a beginner who can only pick up on another singer's sound. 
and also said that she would say it to Natalie's face, allegedly. This was a sign that Natalie Cole had arrived, like it or not. Aretha versus Luther. Aretha wasn't impressed with Luther Vandross, even though he had been hired to produce her album. Aretha didn't think that Luther qualified to boss her around in the studio. Hadn't he learned much of what he knew from listening to her? During a telephone conversation where they discussed the upcoming album, Luther was put off by Aretha's cold, formal demeanor and her insistence on being addressed as Miss Franklin, while she called him Mr. Vandross or simply Vandross. In the studio, they disagreed. Finally, Aretha asked Luther, which one of us has more hits? Clearly, there was no contest. It was early in Luther's career, so he only had one hit, while she had many. He granted her that, but then he flipped the question on her. But who has the most recent hit? He had her there, so she stormed out of the room. They got it together, though. Luther produced Aretha's Jump To It and Get It Right albums, which were pretty successful comebacks for her. And apparently they bonded over their mutual love of fried chicken. Someone claimed that Aretha and Luther left a studio reeking of fried chicken, allegedly. Aretha versus Roberta Flack. Aretha felt threatened by Roberta Flack and got up and walked out when a producer named Joel Dorn tried to play Roberta's first album for her. They were on the same record label and Aretha thought it highly inappropriate that another soul singer, songwriter, and pianist was on the label. Aretha allegedly tried to block Roberta's progress at the label. Aretha versus Whitney Houston. These two singers recorded together only once. Aretha had known Whitney since she was a child, back when Whitney's mother, Sissy, used to be Aretha's backup singer. But if Whitney thought that Aretha's association with Sissy would make things easy, she was mistaken. Aretha went out of her way to show Whitney who the boss was up in here, and she later said that Whitney needed to show humility. Aretha versus Dionne Warwick. Being friends with the Queen of Soul didn't mean she wouldn't feud with you. Aretha and Dion were friends for decades, but they had a little spat when word got back to the Queen that Dion had referred to Aretha as Whitney Houston's godmother at Whitney's funeral. Now, at the beginning of Whitney Houston's career, her mentor, Clive Davis, pulled out all the stops to take her directly to the top, and he exploited her connections, billing her as Sissy Houston's daughter, which was true, and Dion Warwick's cousin, also true. He also claimed that Whitney was Aretha's goddaughter, which wasn't true, but apparently it was okay with Aretha at the beginning because she never complained about it until Dion rehashed it at the funeral. But did Aretha have to call it libelous? And did she have to say that she didn't have time to be Whitney's godmother? But I guess if she didn't have time to be a mother to her own children, she shouldn't have been expected to godparent little Whitney Houston, should she? And for those who don't know, Singer Darlene Love had the honor of being Whitney's real godmother. Also, too, I want to add about this uh, feud with Dionne Warwick. It actually goes back much. Now, back in the 1960s, Dionne Warwick was one of the biggest pop stars of that decade. She spent the 60s opening a lot, a lot of doors for women on the pop charts. And, of course, she had that hit, uh, I Say a Little Prayer for You. Well, you know, when Aretha heard that, her feelings of jealousy really were fueled. You know, she wanted 
to be a bigger pop sensation than she was at the time. So what did Aretha do? She went and recorded her version of I Say a Little Prayer for You. And her version, in many people's opinions, including the opinions of Burt Bacharach and Hal David, who wrote the song, Aretha's version was superior. They said it was the definitive version of that song. So I guess score one for Aretha on that. Now this is a little more alleged, a little more uh, murky. There were rumors of an Aretha versus Mahalia Jackson feud, allegedly because Mahalia refused to perjure herself in court to help C.L. Franklin. But there's not much said about it. I couldn't find much on it. So this will have to go in the rumor pile and the allegedly pile. Aretha versus Gladys Knight. These divas apparently had a stormy relationship that got stormier when Gladys wrote personal information about Aretha in her autobiography. I think Aretha thought Gladys reignited talk that Aretha's mother abandoned her, which was a very touchy subject for Miss Franklin. Aretha versus Patti LaBelle. This might not have been just about singing, but about cooking, and the fact that Patty beat Aretha to the punch when she put out her successful line of sweet potato pies. Aretha had always wanted to start a food line, so it must have been hard to watch Patty succeed so wildly in this endeavor. Uh, Patty and Aretha were seen in public somewhere, where I think Aretha was the focus of the action, and uh, Patty was an audience member. And Patty looked like she was trying to speak to Aretha, and Aretha just walked right past her and didn't even look at her. This footage can be viewed on YouTube. Um, you know, just look up, I guess, Aretha walking past Patty LaBelle or something like that. And uh, it's pretty easy to find. Aretha versus Mavis Staples. Aretha recorded a gospel duet with Mavis, one of the few singers who could keep up with her. In fact, after hearing the recording, she felt that Mavis's vocals surpassed her own. So, according to Aretha's sister Irma, Aretha had Mavis's vocal turned down low in the final mix, which caused there to be bad blood between the two longtime friends. Aretha versus her sisters Irma and Carolyn. Speaking of Aretha's sisters, Aretha supposedly did all she could to hold Irma and Carolyn back. Now remember, these are the first people that Aretha ever feuded with, these are her sisters who she grew up in the same house with. It was fine for them to work with her, arranging vocals and singing backup, even writing songs. But Aretha had a real problem with either of them having careers of their own. She blocked Irma from signing with Epic Records. And when Carolyn was offered the chance to sing on the Sparkle soundtrack, Aretha muscled her way in so that she ended up singing it. Aretha versus Tina Turner. Aretha allegedly became upset when people started calling the queen of rock and roll, calling Tina Turner the queen of rock and roll. I guess she thought it would cause confusion or something. I don't know. But Tina said it was crazy for Aretha to think that she was the only queen that there is. Aretha versus Beyonce. Now this is attached to Aretha's Tina Turner feud. Beyonce was somewhere on stage and she introduced Tina as the queen. And she is the queen of rock and roll, as we just stated. And Aretha had the typical Aretha conniption. But anyway, those are some of Aretha's feuds. I could have probably gone into more feuds, but hey, I had no idea how long this was going to take. But that's the story of Aretha Franklin's feuds, basically. You know, she basically feuded with whoever 
came up, you know, because if it was a talented person, all of these people that she has had these feuds with have been very talented. And I think uh, Aretha admires the talent, but it also, you know, gave her feelings of insecurity about her own talent. And, you know, not just her talent, but her position and her supremacy. She needed to be the very best. And I think some of these people just, in her mind, you know, they were a threat. But uh, to be fair, there were some singers that she liked. As, you know, not just as singers, but I guess as people. You know, she liked Jennifer Hudson enough to cast her as her in her biopic. She liked Diana Ross and she liked Mariah Carey and sang some of Mariah's songs in her concerts. Like Hero, um, Dream Lover, and I thought it was hilarious when she did Touch My Body. And according to Mariah, Aretha insisted that Mariah sing at the very first Divas Live, showing that she could be generous when she wanted to be. But the way that Aretha carried on, you might not guess that she was one of the most successful singers in the history of recording recorded sound. I mean, she had like maybe 112 different chartings uh, on the charts over the course of her career. She was a pioneer with more than her share of firsts. She was the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She was the youngest person up until Stevie Wonder came along to be uh, picked for the Kennedy Center Honors. She had a lot of honors. I can't even... I can't even get into that. That's probably a, an episode uh, unto itself. And it may be an episode that I you know, try to do in the future. Um, she opened a lot of doors for black people and for women. She was difficult and hardy, but don't we expect that from our divas? I mean, we would be really bored if she was just sitting around being nice to everybody and all that type of thing. You know, No, this was a real battle for supremacy for her. And, you know, she did what she had to do, I suppose, at least, you know, in her mind. She was a difficult lady, but she never gave us less than too much. I'm Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered Musical Feuds. I don't know what I'm going to call it. I guess I'm going to just call it Aretha Queen of Feuds and not Aretha Queen of Verses. I think that probably... Uh, would be appropriate because Aretha was something else and that is really missed but anyway Monica here remembering the misremembered remembering the, remembering the super diva herself Miss Aretha Franklin I will see you soon